Almighty God, may the words of my mouth and the thoughts of our hearts be acceptable to you through your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So, if you were marooned on a desert island, and if you could have only one chapter of the Bible with you, what would you choose? Any thoughts? Psalms? Psalms, okay. That's good. I mean, all these choices are good, right? But which chapter of Psalms? Okay, that's a good choice. Any others? You know, many Christians would say our epistle reading for tonight, Romans chapter 8. If you had to have only one chapter, this might be it, okay? You know, someone once said, everything's great in Romans 8. And, And it's really true. And I'll tell you why. Because, number one, It begins with nothing, and secondly, it ends with nothing. By that I mean, Paul begins the chapter by saying, there is now no condemnation, nothing in regard to any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then he ends the chapter by saying, nothing shall separate us from the love of God that is ours in Christ Jesus. I mean, it's all gospel, and it's all wonderful, especially for people who are aware of their sinfulness. This is good news. And so it's appropriate that it be the epistle reading for New Year's Eve. And we're going to take a look at it this evening on page uh, 6, and then page 7 is the outline. And so we'll begin on page 7, Roman numeral 1. Paul writes, and we know, and I italicize that to to emphasize it, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. So I ask the question, letter A, how do we know this? How do we know that all things work together for good? And I give you the answer. See verse 32, okay? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things, you see. If he gives us Jesus, then there's nothing that he will hold back. You see, it would be amazing if the Father himself laid down his life for you, but then God does something even more spectacular. He gives up his own son, you see. And that's a far greater thing because I might, as I've said before, I might lay down my life for you, No, I would. I think I would. I like to think I would. Okay. But I wouldn't give up my daughter's life for you. Wouldn't go there. Not going to happen. Okay. But what you and I would not do, and I trust you probably wouldn't do that either, what you and I would not do, God did, you see. And that's the unchanging testimony for all eternity of God's love for you. No matter what happens to you in the coming year, you know this. God loves you so much that he gave his son, you see. And then letter B, and this is a a, a thought from Luther, God cannot be known apart from the cross. You cannot know the love and the mercy of God. God is love, by the way. You can't know the love and the mercy of God apart from the cross. The cross is our only source of knowledge. 
about who God truly is and how he saves. It's all wrapped up there at Calvary. That's how we know him, you see. You can know about him, but this is how we know him. It's through the cross and nothing else. You can't know his love apart from that. And then I love Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his love for us in this way. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, that's unconditional love. Doesn't depend on your performance. It depends on God's performance. And that makes it sure and certain. It doesn't change. You and I will, but his love for you won't. Roman numeral two. And we know that for those who love God, there's the emphasis this time, all things work together for good. Now, I was reading a commentary that, that said, uh, well, actually, this was a, a comment online. This is a bad statement because it's limiting God's care. His care is limited to those who love God. And that's kind of restrictive. But I would say it's not restrictive at all. Because, letter A, we love only because he first loved us. That's 1 John 4.19. We, we can't love God at all. No one can. I can't. You can't. doesn't matter how many degrees you have behind your name, how many uh, seminarian certificates or, or uh, master's degrees you have. You can't love God apart from his love for you. It's impossible. And that love of God for the world is for the world. It's for all people. It's not restricted at all. I know some haven't heard. And that's our responsibility. But some have heard and don't believe. That's their responsibility. But there's nothing restrictive about it. Because God's love is for all, and it is his love for us that enables our love for him. Otherwise, it wouldn't exist. Let it be. Without the love of God, you cannot know that all things will work together for good. You cannot believe that all things will work together for good. And I cite 1 John 4.18, where John writes, Perfect love casts out fear. There is no fear in love. If you have a loving relationship with someone, you will not fear what they may do. See, I love my wife. My wife loves me. I don't go to bed at night worrying about what she's going to do tomorrow and how it's going to negatively affect me. I don't worry about that. Because of the love that exists, there's trust there, you see. And it's like that with God and you. When you have a loving relationship with God, which is always preceded by his love for you, when you have that loving relationship, you're not worrying about what's going to happen to you next year. There's no need to worry about it because the love in your heart produces a trust that no matter what comes your way, his love for you will not change. Roman numeral three. And we know that for those who love God, all things, all things work together for good. Now letter A, Paul does not say that all things are good. Many things are not good. Many things are contrary to the will of God. Not all things are good, but all things 
work together for the good. And several years ago on New Year's Eve, I preached uh, a sermon called entitled a, a Conspiracy of Good. Because God causes all things to work together. It's like a conspiracy, but not a, a negative one to undermine you. But a loving conspiracy to benefit you, to draw you closer to Him. And let her be, God's control over evil is so complete. His control over evil, the evil that we do, is so complete that He can claim it for His own purposes. He's able to bring good out of it. It doesn't justify the evil at all, but it proclaims the greatness of God that he can take something horrendous and horrific and he can bring something good out of it. And we see this in scripture and we see this in life. Uh, Joseph in the book of Genesis said in chapter 50 to his brothers who had sold him into slavery, they had abandoned him to an early death. And Joseph confronted them lovingly and he said, you meant me evil, but God meant it for good to save many lives. And the cross of our Lord is the best example of that. Roman number four. And we know, Paul writes, that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For good. And you know, when you read that in Romans 8, you may question, well, exactly how do we define good? Okay. God may define good one way. I may define it a different way. And sometimes our expectations of God are a little different than God, God's plan for us. And that can lead to disappointment, and it sometimes does. It's important for us to understand how God defines what is good. Letter A, good. The word agathos in Greek, we get, uh, well, there's the feminine name agatha. Um, good refers only to God and to God's work. That's how scripture uses the term good. Jesus says, for example, this is when he's, um, he's approached by a rich young man who asks him this question, good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What does Jesus say? Why do you call me good. Now, Jesus is not questioning his own divinity. He's well aware of that. But, he, but he's really asking this question. Are you asking me because you understand who I am? Or are you just being polite? He's just being polite. There's no one good but God. God alone is good. Good is not native to you and me ever since Genesis 3. It's not native to us. Our goodness, our righteousness comes from outside us by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. That's our goodness. It's given. It's not inherent in us. Everything God does is good. Now, Genesis 1-4, you know, God said, let there be light. There was light. He separated the light from the dark and he saw that it was good. Now, contrast that with what St. Paul writes in Romans 7. He says, I know that in me, that is, in my flesh, there dwells no good thing. The good that I would do, I don't. 
The evil that I would not, I do. You see, speaking of a sinful nature, there's, there's nothing good natively in me or in you. Our goodness is from outside us. And I like the way Paul puts it in Philippians chapter 1. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. And then in chapter 2, verse 12, Philippians, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. Good is what God does. And so what is that good? Let her be. The good Paul speaks of is this. It is to be conformed to the image of Christ. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. That's the good. And we touched on this Sunday morning in the sermon. We talked about how Jesus, when he's born of the Virgin Mary, he is the new humanity. He is what it means to be truly human. You know, we're all made in God's image, but that image is twisted. It is disfigured by sin, but not in Christ. He's made like us in every way, yet without sin. So if you want to know what a true human being looks like, you must look at Jesus Christ. Because that kind of man has not existed since Genesis 2, before the fall into sin. And so we're being conformed to Christ. Our human nature is being restored. We're being remade in the image of God to be like him. That's the good that God is bringing about. That's the good that he is accomplishing in us with every passing year, every passing day. And the imagery here, it, it, may, it reminded me of what my wife was doing last week. She was... Um, sewing curtains. They were um, valances that go above the window. They're like little short curtains, you know, that hang from the top of the window, but they require a pattern. And so you, you get your fabric, you lay it out. I think you came to the church to do it, right? Because you have a lot of tables over here. And so you spread the cloth out, the fabric out on the table, and then you set the pattern down on the fabric and you have to, if I get this right, you have to align the pattern with the grain of the fabric. The fabric has a grain to it. It can stretch maybe in one direction, sometimes two directions. You've got to be aware of that. When you, and then, then you take your scissors and you cut around the pattern just so, you see. And, and you are conforming the fabric to the pattern of, of, of what's there on the table. And so that's really what Paul is describing here. We're being cut in such a way to conform us to the Son of God, Jesus Christ. That's the good that God is bringing about, okay? And, that's what, and that job, that conforming, will not be done until the last day. And so that's what God is accomplishing in us. And then letter C. Uh, this is interesting. Verse 37, verse 37, no, in all these things... We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And, and the list that precedes this involves persecution, distress, you know, being pressured, uh, 
famine, nakedness, danger, or sword, being killed even. In all these things, we're more than conquerors. So what does that mean? What does it mean to be more than a conqueror? Well, there are two ways to describe victory in the ancient world. There is victory. That's where you defeat your enemy. But your enemy's still around, able to do a lot of mischief. And then there's total victory, okay? There's complete destruction of the enemy so that the enemy is completely disabled and cannot do anything to harm you anymore. That is a complete and a total victory. And that's what Paul is describing. In spite of the persecution, in spite of the danger, the sword being slaughtered like sheep, in spite of all those things, the enemy is nevertheless powerless to stop this process, that, the good that God is bringing about, conforming us to the image of his son. It can't be stopped. Everything the enemy does, and the enemy includes my sinful nature, the enemy includes the world, not just the devil, everything the enemy does fails. It fails. The enemy is powerless to derail this gracious process of God that is conforming you to the image of Christ. As I said, that process is completed on the last day, and we look forward to that. But until that day, we are secure in Christ, and these things which the world and our own sinful nature bring upon us, these things described in verses 35 and 36, these things do not stop God from accomplishing his good and gracious work in you. In fact, it is these very things that God uses to cut the pattern, to conform you to the pattern that is Jesus. Through these very things that we dread, God actually accomplishes his good. And that's God's good and gracious will for you in the new year and every year. No matter what the year may bring, you can count on this, that God is accomplishing his work of conforming you to Jesus. And as I said on Sunday morning, every day I mourn my sinful nature for some reason or another, for whatever eruption comes forth that day, I'm sad and I'm regretful and I look forward to the day when it will be no more. And you and I together will be perfectly conformed to that model, that pattern, which is Jesus. In his name, amen.